Well, good morning again. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Brad Cheney, one of the pastors here at All Saints, and who is headed on vacation at the end of today. So <laughs> pretty happy to, uh, I will be out for the next three Sundays, and um, Brian and Phil and Shelton will, will do a great job preaching through the uh, what, fourth, fifth, and sixth commandments. Today, unsurprisingly, we are in the third, if you didn't catch that theme throughout the liturgy. Let's read it from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, the preface. I'm going to read each, read each week in verse 7, which is the third commandment. And God spoke all these words, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And then we have these questions from the larger catechism. What does the third commandment require? The third commandment requires the holy and reverent use in our thoughts, meditations, words, and writings of God's name, titles, qualities, regulations, words, sacraments, prayer, his works, and anything else by which he makes himself known. This treatment will be reflected in holy affirmations of our faith and conduct that matches our affirmations to the glory of God and the good of ourselves uh, and others and our neighbors. And then what particular sins does the third commandment forbid? The third commandment forbids not using God's name as is required, the abuse of it through ignorance, empty or unholy treatment, irreverence, superstition, or any wicked reference to his titles, qualities, regulations, or works, opposing in any way God's truth, grace, and actions, pretending to be religious or using religion for evil purposes, being ashamed of God's name or ashamed to it by stubbornly refusing to obey him and by living unwisely, unfruitfully, or in such a way as to offend him or backslide away from him. Why don't we pray one more time? Our Father in heaven, we've already sung those words from Psalm 8. Uh, oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And it is the desire of our hearts that we would truly you know, reverence and esteem your name. Uh, we want to do that. Um, we want to honor your name and love your name and treasure your name completely. And so we ask for your help in learning how to do so better and more fully. Um, we thank you, Father, for your word we thank you, Father, for your Son. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. Soli Deo Gloria. Amen. You remember the saying in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet? It's a question that Juliet asks. I can't remember where in the play um, or what soliloquy, but she, she says, what's in a name? What's in a name? You know, Capulet, Montague, What's in a name? And, and kind of the way what she implies by the question is that a name is, is really nothing more than a title. It's a label. It's not the person. So for instance, if I call her Elizabeth or Beth or Liz or Lizzie, she's still the same person. Uh, the implication being that a name is, 
it's not that big of a deal. And it, it, maybe people are kind of surprised you get to the third commandment. Why does God, why does he care so much about a name? What is a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would still smell as, as sweet, as Juliet says. But when we get to the Bible, what we discover, I'll use a philosophical word, God is not a nominalist. God is not a nominalist. God, God doesn't, the way God relates to language and the way he relates to names in particular is there is a close correspondence between a name of a thing and the thing itself. Uh, um, and we see this very often in the Bible. You know, when somebody is given a name, when they're born, that name will reflect something about that person, be it their birth story or their character or their personal history. You think of the names that Leah and Rachel gave to their sons. Every one of those names of the sons of Israel had quite a tall tale associated with it. Uh, each time a name in the Bible is changed for uh, uh, various and sundry reasons. Think of the changing of Abram's name to Abraham, or the changing of Simon's name to Peter. Um, it's a very big deal. Uh, and of course, it's a very big deal when the Lord reveals himself to Moses at the burning bush. And when Moses says, well, what am I supposed to tell them? Who sent me? Who, speak, who am I speaking? On whose behalf am I speaking? He says, you're to tell them Yahweh. You know, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I am letting you know my personal name. So returning to the third commandment. You know, most of the time, people are familiar with the third commandment in terms of, well, you shouldn't cuss, <laughs> you know, or, or you shouldn't use profanity, or you shouldn't, you shouldn't use God's name frivolously. And, and yes, that's true. I mean, you shouldn't use God's name frivolously. Um, you shouldn't, in your text, you know, conversations, type OMG. You shouldn't, even though that's completely ubiquitous in our society, you shouldn't. You really shouldn't use any word frivolously if it's a word about something important, and God is, of course, the most important of all. But, but if that's all that we associate with the third commandment, it's a very superficial understanding. In verse 7, the Hebrew very literally re reads this. You shall not bear up, take up, and the idea being take up upon your lips or bear upon your lips God's name in emptiness. That, that Hebrew word there, it, you know, vanity, vanity of vanity, life is vanity. Ecclesiastes uh, talks about that. Just you may not bear his name in, in unthinkingness, uh, in lightness. You may not use his name lightly or you may not use his name by rote. Um, but, but mostly you must just not bear his name in emptiness. Mike Leake is a Baptist pastor in Indiana, and I came across an article that he wrote on the third commandment. It caught my eye because the song that he references in his article happens to be the song that we started our worship service today. Uh, he, he said in his own words, I'm ashamed to confess that I broke the third commandment the other day. You might be surprised by that. Why in the world would a preacher of the gospel be guilty of dropping a big curse word? But I didn't use God's name in a string of expletives. 
Uh, I was singing 10,000 Reasons, which you know, has these lyrics that extol the greatness of God. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. And all the while, and a fajita sure sounds good right now, is, is what I'm thinking about. Worship his holy name. But can our budget fit in eating out at a sit-down restaurant today? Sing like never before. Maybe if we ordered off the lunch menu at the Mexican food restaurant, we could afford it. I'll worship your holy name. Anything but McDonald's. Yep, I think Mexican it is. And he says, and then I'm drawn back into the song and I raise my hands up a little higher. <laughs> and isn't that, isn't, it, isn't that something every one of us can relate to? Uh, we, it's not, you know, we sing or we pray in an empty way. We're thinking about fajitas. We're thinking about, you know, the sports score. We say the words but don't mean them. We sing words of passion with no passion. We are not engaged at all by the things that we, the holy things that we are taking upon our lips. Now, I really think the third commandment is, a, it's kind of like a standalone argument for preparing yourself before you walk in these doors to worship. I don't know how many of you end up downloading the liturgy that I put online um, every Friday night. I know some of, you, some of you do. I know our family used to be better about that when the kids were younger. We'd download the liturgy. We'd go over it um, on Saturday and just kind of, kind of be ready to know what we were going to say to God on Sunday morning. Because these are, these are significant things that we're saying. Um, I suspect that the, the liturgy doesn't get a lot of downloads. <laughs> but... It should. I, I noticed that this happens at our dinner table on some evenings. Erin um, will cook a meal and she'll say, dinner's ready. Everybody assemble up around the table. We're going to do our family prayers be, uh, before we eat. This is customary. But we will have just gotten out of or been embroiled in a big family fight. <laughs> no, that never happens in your families. But you know, we're yelling at each other, or maybe not yelling, but we're strongly disagreeing with each other. But now it's time to pray, and, and we're supposed to say grace before the meal. And, I mean, none of us, just none of us are ready. None of us are in a, a mindset and a framework to approach God in prayer and to take his name, you know, on our lips. And yet, all right, let's bow our heads, and we, we just do. We just go through with it because it's Time to pray. Have you ever done that? One of the features of our worship is we do a lot of recitation. I mean, we recited Psalm 148 already. We regularly recite the Apostles and Nicene Creed. Uh, it's, it's very easy to read something and, or recite something and just have no connection with it. I kind of, I'd liken it to the difference, the different ways that people recite the Pledge of Allegiance. I mean, in, when I was growing up as part of elementary school, do they still do, do this? You have to recite the Pledge of Allegiance before every class. Um, you know, how does a fourth grade boy recite the Pledge of Allegiance? I mean, he's trying to kick the kid next to him, and he's throwing spit wads. How does a combat veteran you know, who, who's gotten the Purple Heart and has you know, served this country. What is the difference between those two when they 
recite the Pledge of Allegiance. I mean, it's every, the difference is entire. It's complete. It's, it's total because of what it means to one versus what it means to the other. And I think these are third commandment issues, really. Something similar happens at the Lord's table. You know, we can eat and drink with engaged hearts, or we can eat and drink every week just by rote. Um, And all of these are third commandment issues, aren't they? And what God is saying is, when you take my name upon your lips and you do anything that is religious, you, you know, participate in this sacrament, you read my word, you sing to me, all of those things, will you please recognize that my name represents my character and, and you must not do that in emptiness and, you know, thoughtlessness? The Dutch scholar, Joachim Dumas, several years ago, He wrote a very insightful commentary on the Ten Commandments. And he says, so he goes through and he looks at the historical context of each of the commandments. And he says that in the Old Testament, the way the third commandment was most commonly profaned was three ways. Number one, by sorcery. By uh, trying to access supernatural power by intoning the divine name or, or names. And that was just kind of part of astrology and all kinds of ancient Near Eastern religions, where if you're able to get the special name of something, you're able to command power over it. And it's kind of part of the reason why, you know, the Jews, they got to the point where they would no longer read Yahweh when they were reading in their Bibles. And instead, for fear of intoning the divine name in a certain way and, and sacrilegious, making it sacrilegious, trying to think of sacrilegious but that's not a word. <laughs> um, they would say Adonai. They would say Lord. They would not say Yahweh. So one was by sorcery. Two was by false prophecy. That is to claim God is on my side and God said this and God said that. And the third was by taking false oaths. By saying God is my witness. I'm telling the truth and you're not telling the truth. And it got me thinking, when you look at those three, sorcery, false prophecy, false oaths, what is the common denominator between them? In each case, what they're doing is they're using God's name for personal advantage. You use God to get what you want. Um, and because God's name is, is, is powerful. Let me give you an example. Probably all of you have seen this. If you've ever lived in a family, a child goes up to a door and they try to get in and they find that that door is locked. On the other side of the door is another child. So the first child says, open up. And inside a little voice uh, replies, no. <laughs> An interchange ensues. Uh, there's no progress made. Finally, the child on the outside mutters, Daddy says, open up. And miraculously, the door springs wide open. Now, why would that be? And the answer is because names open doors. And powerful names uh, open um, powerful doors. Powerful names help us accrue power. That is how business works. If you say that the governor or the senator is behind your engineering proposal, if you say, if you name drop the right name, 
It's a, it, you accrue power through doing so. And there's no more powerful name than God, than God himself. And, and that's why people have always used religion to help them get what they want. And guess what? Pastors are, are no better. And churches are no better. We do that. If a church wants to start a building campaign and the leaders of the church go to the congregation and they say, we prayed, we've sought the Lord in prayer and God has told us that he wants us to have a building, but we need you to give generously. Will you be obedient to the Lord? Ever heard that one, (laughs) that pitch before? So always a good question to be asking ourselves is, am I Am I using the Bible or am I using Jesus or am I using the Holy Spirit to somehow serve my own advantage? Um, Am I using God's name to get me what I want? You know, sometimes I don't know how I should feel about local businesses that have a fish on their business sign. I'm like, what are, you, what are you trying to tell me by that? Are you telling me that you're a Christian and that you will work honestly and faithfully and forthrightly? Or are you using an ichthus as a way to drum up business for yourself? What are you trying to say? Okay, well, all of that, I kind of looked at the negative side of the commandment. But, I mean, what really matters is thinking about it positively, um, what does it mean to positively take up God's name on our lips? When we, you know what we want to sound like when we use God's name? We want to sound like Tony in West Side Story when he sings about the most beautiful sound I've ever heard, right? The most beautiful sound I ever heard, Maria. And that is a man who is, he is smitten in love. When he takes her name, he writes songs about it. He is smitten. He, that, that's what we want to sound like. We, you know who else we want to sound like in a very different vein? We want to sound like Augustine in his confessions. If you read through, I mean, very dense reading, but you go through, you find this man, he is head over heels in deep, deep heartfelt, but deep intellectual um, affection for God. So here's just an excerpt from Augustine's Confessions. He says, Oh, you supreme, most excellent, most mighty, most omnipotent, most merciful, and most just God, most secret and most present, most beautiful and most strong, stable and incomprehensible, immutable yet changing all things, Never new and never old, ever active and ever quiet, upholding, filling, and protecting, creating, nourishing, and perfecting all things. Still seeking, though you stand in need of nothing. Oh, I love that line. Still seeking, though you stand in need of nothing. And in these words, what have I said other than you are my God, you are my life, you are my sweetness? It's a little more sophisticated than Tony. Is that how we sound? All right, my favorite part of this sermon is this story I'm going to tell you. Uh, About five years ago, CBS News was doing one of those kind of personal interest stories that they do at the end of the newscast. You know what I'm talking about? And so they, I think this was 
2013, and they did an interest story on a woman who lost her husband in World War II. His name was Billy Harris, and her name is um, Peggy Harris, lives in a little town in Texas, Vernon, Texas. Billy and Peggy Harris were married for only six weeks before he he was deployed uh, to war. He was a pilot. He flew in the D-Day efforts, um, the Normandy invasion. His plane was shot down over German-occupied France. And at first, the United States government wrote to her and said that he's missing in action. Well, she waits a little while. She gets another letter. No, he's dead. Waits a little while. Then he gets another, she gets another letter. No, he's coming home. And so she thought he's coming home. And then she gets another letter, which was basically, we don't know what happened to him. And so she goes for seven decades of her life and remains a widow. Never felt like she should or, or wanted to remarry. Never moved on with her life. Um, knew that something had happened to her husband, but was never able to get any official confirmation what happened to her husband. She just assumed that he, he was dead. Well, she had a cousin who, um, I'm surprised that the cousin didn't look into it sooner, but the cousin it was not satisfied with the answers that the United States government had given to Peggy about Bill's um, demise. And, 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 and so he did a little investigative digging. And I guess at this point is when CBS News caught wind of the story because what the cousin discovered was something like straight out of a movie or out of, um, you know, a, a book. It turns out that the Billy Harris's plane was struck by what German artillery in the sky. And as the plane was you know, crashing down to earth, it was headed straight for a little Fritch village named, let me get, let me get it right, um, named Levon. And uh, it, it happened in the middle of the day. There were many eyewitnesses. And basically the whole village sees this plane that, that struck, that is coming down. And then at the last moment, the pilot veers the plane to the right and avoids striking the village, and he crashes into the woods that are just outside the, the town. And so they you know, ran to the, the wreckage, and they found him dead. He was in his flight uniform, and he had a tag on his, on his flight uniform, read Billy D. Harris. So they buried him locally uh, in a local grave. Here we are, 70 years later, and CBS News pulls into the town of Levant. And what do they find? But the main thoroughfare through the village is named, get this, Plaz Billy D. Harris. Three times a year, all of the villagers make a pilgrimage along Plaz Billy D. Harris out to the monument they have for the war dead. And they read all of the names of the war dead there on the monument. And so the, CBS News is filming this. The mayor of the town is reading through the names. And when she, when she gets to Billy D. Harris's name, like she's literally choked up. The mayor of Levant is choked. She can barely get the name out of her mouth because she is so moved by it. And this has been going on for 70 years. And the widow never knew anything about it. See, what's in a name? 
think about it. If there was a child in the city, in the village of Levon, who was speaking rather profanely about this Billy D. Harris character, what would a townsperson in Levant say to that child? Would, would, would a townsperson do what, like, what my dad would do to me when I used a bad word, a curse word? You know, I mean, I, he took soap and my toothbrush, and I had to wash my mouth out with soap. Anybody have that? Is that would a townsperson, you did too, Nate? <laughs> yeah. And we're scarred for the rest of our lives, right? Would a townsperson say, you know, you must not speak that way? I mean, most likely a townsperson would say, let me, do you know what you're doing? Let me tell you this story. I have a story to tell you of a man who came over, who sacrificed his life, and who who went out of his way to protect our village. A townsperson might even walk that child into the woods to the site of the crash or walk that child to the monument of, of the war dead because he sacrificed his life for ours. Is that how you feel about Jesus' name? Can I get an amen? Amen. Is that how you feel about Jesus' name? There is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. It sounds like music in mine ear. The sweetest name on earth. Oh, how I love Jesus. How many of you grew up? um, That's an old-timey one. How many of you grew up with that one? Oh, how I love Jesus because he first loved me. It tells me of a Savior's love who died to set me free. It tells me of his precious blood, the sinner's perfect plea. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus, the sweetest name on earth. You know, many commentators have pointed out the the obvious fact that there is a threat attached to the third commandment I mean, a very serious threat, which underscores the seriousness of this commandment. God says to Israel, Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name, my name, in vain. Or to put it in a different way, I will hold you guilty for taking my name in vain. Um, and that is both frightening, but I think what I felt as I, as I reflected on it this week is I'm just sad for how many times I have taken the name of Jesus so thoughtlessly, so emptily, so by rote, or so for personal advantage. I mean, the thing about the third commandment is like every one of us has transgressed this so many times. And the Lord will not hold him guiltless who transgresses this commandment once. We've transgressed this commandment a million times. Like, especially preachers, the more you talk about God, kind of the more danger you're in. And I've, I've done it a million times. But Jesus Christ is the, like, the one man who was not a hypocrite, like, who never took the name of the Lord as God like for personal advantage, who never used religion to get his way. He was the only one who wasn't the covenant breaker. And he's, he's judged as guilty in our place. He's stripped naked. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So I kind of have just this whole mixture of I'm frightened, I'm, I'm sad, and I'm deeply thankful you know, for a man who, who gave himself. 
in the way that Jesus did. Let me conclude with a final and very simple point. I, I try to stress this usually when I perform a baptism. I've always said that baptism is fundamentally a naming ceremony. You've heard me say that? Right? We are baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In baptism, we are truly given a new name. Like God places his name upon us. I mean, just like a father would do in, in, an adopted kid. God places his name in that ceremony over us so that we would then carry the name of the family and the father's identity with us wherever we go as representatives, making him known in the world. You know, when you think about it, it is astounding that God doesn't have more quality control. <laughs> like all of the great companies out there, they say Nordstrom's, Nordstrom's is notorious for being extremely particular in their hiring processes and their training processes, infamously so, because they understand that people's perceptions of Nordstrom is going to be entirely formed by the employees who represent them. And, and Nordstrom's has a high standard, and so we're only going to take the very best. Did God take only the very best at our baptism? And yet he chose to put his, his sacred name over you. Um, and there's not a rigorous vetting process. Um, he, he doesn't get the five-star prospects. He didn't pick the A-team. But he picked us so that flawed as we are, we might make him known to the rest of the world. And so I think, to conclude, part of the third commandment is for us to go into the world and accurately represent what it looks like for sinners to have a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We go out there and we just try to accurately represent. What is it like to be in, in covenant with Yahweh, in covenant with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ? Um, there's nothing more precious in the world than God's name. There's nothing more precious in this world than God's name. And you carry that name with you wherever you go. Amen.